Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. On today's show, we have a thinker who's been making a lot of waves recently with her recent book, Feminism Against Progress. I'm speaking, of course, of Mary Harrington. We've done quite a few episodes on this show on feminism and gender, but Mary Harrington, who describes herself as a reactionary feminist and is a contributing editor at Unheard, I think is doing really unique work that adds a lot to the conversation about the problems modern women face. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. Her book is linked in the show notes. And if you enjoy this conversation, I'd also encourage you to follow the Madison program on social media, on Twitter or Instagram, or go to our website, jmp.princeton.edu, where we have a ton more episodes, lectures, etc. So with no further ado, let's dig in. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to kick off by asking about the title, because I think there's a little bit of ambiguity in it, and I sort of wonder whether it's purposeful. But kick us off here. Um, Is the problem that feminism is against progress or that feminism is not against progress and we want it to become against progress? (laughs) Do you know, I've had had a few people assume that my (laughs) my complaint was that feminism is opposed to progress and that I thought (laughs) feminism should become aligned with progress. On the contrary, it is my view that the only usable, sane, coherent form of feminism is one which is arranged against progress. Now, of course, whether or not you agree with me on that probably depends on your definition of progress. Right. And I've spent I've spent some I've, I've gone into some detail in the book on on on, ex, on explaining what I mean by progress, such as to argue that it, it's anti-feminist or anti-women, I suppose I should say, and more 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 generally that it's anti-human at the at the point in, at the point we're in now. Um, but but yeah, my my argument is that in order if we're to stand up for women's interests now, we need to we we need to be going all out to oppose what progress has become in the 21st century. So anti-human. Anti-human. Now, now we, we've put forward, we don't know what progress is. I don't know what anti-human is either. So talk to me about both sides okay. of this equation. <laughs> okay, so, so, by, so I, I guess I'll start from the top. I don't believe in progress. I don't think it's a thing. Um, and, or, and, and, and when, I, when I say I don't believe in progress, I mean, I, don't, I, I, I am a progress atheist in mm. I, I am a, I, I am a skeptic of the the quasi theological turn which progress has taken in contemporary culture and politics. Now this is something which I, I every, anybody who lives in the in the developed world in the West, particularly the Anglophone West, will be familiar with, whether you're aware of it or not, because it's just in the water. The idea that it's it's moving forward is always better than going backwards. The idea that things can somehow indefinably go on getting better, but simultaneously the fact that things are getting better is a fragile set of achievements which must be defended at all costs from the malign forces of of reaction. You know, this is a this is a paradox that everybody's just used to swallowing all the time because it's it's always there in the way um, in 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 the way in the way politics is discussed and the way the the way the news is is handled in the progressive press and even people who don't who think of themselves as conservative are more often than not more progressive than not they just want to go a bit slower so and 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 I, I've in the book I've characterised this as as progress theology so 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 what we're talking about here is a kind of secularised um, a degraded secularised version of a Christian eschatology 
the, the the sort of Christian view of time as having a direction, which is not which is not by no means a universal viewpoint. People don't even realize this. You know, there are plenty of there are plenty of cultures and and theodicies in which you know things things go around in a circle. Things things recur eternally over a, over an enormous period of time. Um, in 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 Hindu culture, for example, um, it's 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 unique. I think particularly to the peoples of the book, but particularly to Christianity, to think of, of history as having a direction as such. Um, and in in if in an explicitly Christian worldview, that that would be understood as as not being attainable until we reach heaven on earth. You know, there's a there's right. a point at which we stop being able to move towards perfection on earth, and where where we're reliant on the grace of God, or you know, the the apocalypse, or you know, a sort assorted other kind of you know transformative things will happen, and, and we can't do it on our own. Um, in the in the post Christian world, where structurally we still think in much the same way, but a great many of us don't really don't really have sort of excised the God bit more or less. Um, that that the shape of that is still there, but just without the death, judgment, heaven and hell bit. And so somehow people have reduced it to a much a sort of simplified version where we can history still has a direction, but we're going to achieve heaven on earth. Uh, we're going to imminentize the eschaton. And I forget. I forget who it was who said that. But this, this is the belief that we can, we can, and should be aiming for this is fairly deeply baked into post-Christian progressivism. Um, I haven't, I haven't spent a great deal of time, lest, lest anybody's put off by the idea that I've spent ages arguing about metaphysics. I have not in the book. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I think I spent not much more than a couple of paragraphs on this. But it's, it's, it's really just to set it out as a starting premise for the book that this is a belief. It's not a fact. Well, once you start digging down into the evidence that people offer for progress, uh, you can every the moment you point to something as having improved, you can also point to some but something else as having degraded. It's just not obvious to me that the the, the net sum the, the the sum total of human felicity on any metric you care to name um, is or, or the 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 total sum of human felicity taking taking everything into account is any is any greater now than it was say a thousand years ago. I just don't I don't see how you can argue that without defining your terms so narrowly as to have assumed the truth of what you set out to prove, which is, say, begging the question. So, so this is, this is the starting, my starting framework. I don't believe in progress. Um, right. But this left me with a problem, um, which is that I grew up taking for granted, um, as a fairly kind of bog-standard liberal, liberal young woman in bourgeois, middle-class, English, liberal, you know, relatively secular, kind of normy, norm, normy worldview <laughs> in the 1990s. But um, feminism is, I mean, if, if you'd asked me when I was about 15 or 16 to, to point to evidence of progress, I'd say, well, you know, feminism, obviously, you know, things are much better now than they were, say, 100 years ago for women. You know, on, you know you, how could you possibly say you're against progress? Because that would mean, you know, do, do you really want to go back to not being able to vote or to being the property of your husband or not being able to own, own, own property or work or, you know, surely, surely you believe in progress. And I'm like, Okay, so so at the point where I realised I didn't believe in progress anymore, I was I sat there thinking, does this mean I'm allowed to be a feminist? Does this mean does it follow from this that if I don't believe in progress, I must also ditch feminism? And I thought, well, no, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me, because it's still obviously the case that there are times when women's interests need to be defended in as as such, not as as part of some sort of larger amorphous class of human beings more generally. There are times when women's interests, specifically as women, are still politically salient, and these are often overlooked. But I'm not sure, I, I'm no, I, realize, I also realised that I was no longer convinced that the 
metrics that the pro- that progress progress theology was using to measure women's interests were really doing a very good job of defending them in those terms or to put it another way it seemed it no longer seemed obvious to me that progress theology was feminist even though despite the fact that it still claimed that this was all part of the same package and you had to sign up for the whole thing or you just weren't you weren't on board at all um so 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 this i don't i don't know if this is unpacking for you um feminism against progress <laughs> i mean this is this is really just sort of set, setting out the starting point of the book anyway and as i as i dug into i dug into all of this um, i had a baby around the same time which sort right. of concretized right. a lot of these thoughts to in a very you know, very literal way because <laughs> right. you know a lot a lot of the things which i'd been sort of I, I might have theorized before about dependency and about you know biological um, um you know by female specific biological differences to men um were were things I was living through rather than thinking about in the abstract. And also it challenged a lot of my preconceptions about what what these things mean in the modern world, in the sense that I I, I mean I grew up in a fairly sort of trad, I suppose, family setting. My mum was a for, for most of my childhood she was a stay at home mum, my dad was the breadwinner. Um and I for complicated reasons, um I sort of came I my takeaway from all of that plus um Plus some, a certain amount. Some of my reading as a teenager was that this is this is just not a particularly great setup for women. This, to, to be a stay-at-home mum was to be a second-class person. Was to be a, a kind of a kind of subordinate support human. That marriage was probably a vestigial patriarchal system for oppressing women, and um, if and, and to be emancipated meant to be as free as possible from those sorts of bonds, and, and you know possibly also to be free of having children. And having those sorts of caring obligations, because that was the thing that seemed to shove you into these um, oppressive boxes that you then couldn't get out of. Um, but then after I had a baby, I, I sort of I, I took all of that out and I thought, no, actually, this, this doesn't map onto what's happening to me right now. Um, particularly, I mean, the, the thing that really brought this into focus for me was, um, in, I don't know, if, I mean, I know it's very different in the United States, but in the UK, um, you have a statutory entitlement to six months of, of paid maternity leave. And then another, you can take another six months unpaid, and everybody has the right to do that. So I had a baby, and there was a, there was a bunch of other women in my in my NCT, my my pregnancy class. We all had babies, and we sort of met up periodically. And there were other mums that I talked to all had babies around the same time. Most of them started going back to work from sort of six to eight months onwards. Lots of them were, lots of them had very mixed feelings about it. You know, some of them were really happy to go back to their jobs. Lots of them were felt felt very very sad sad about leaving their babies. Um, it was it was it was complicated. Um, I was terrible at every job that I ever did up to the <laughs> point where I, I became a writer by mistake at the age of 40. Um, I was absolutely rubbish at all of them. And there was literally nothing that I thought, you know, I, I sort of pretty much fell off the edge of contract work when I became a mum. And when it got to the point, I remember my husband asking me, do you, do you want to go back to work? And I was like, I can't really think of anything that I want to do more than I want to mm. be with my daughter. I just... just I can think. You know, I didn't particularly enjoy any of the jobs I was doing before I was doing them because I had to do something, um, and it sort of felt rude to just kind of freeload off my husband when when there was I wasn't really doing anything else. Um, but given the choice between doing that and looking after my daughter, it was kind of a no brainer. And at that point, I realised that you know, far from being um, far far from being something oppressive necessarily, you know, un- under 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 the modern under modern conditions actually i was in a position of extraordinary privilege to have the option of being a stay at home mum because it was it's, it's only because we were we were in a, we had the resources to be able to afford, to survive on one income that 
I was able to have that choice at all. And a great many of my peers who'd had babies at the same time as me um, weren't in that position at all. And even though they probably would have jumped at the chance to be a stay-at-home mum, they, 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 they literally had to go back to work. You know, and perhaps they perhaps there were jobs they didn't particularly enjoy doing, but you know, and often you know had had pretty mixed feelings about leaving their babies. And, and I thought, well, this this doesn't really map onto what what I've always believed about what's going on here. So you know, I'm sort of pushing pushing a buggy around the empty streets in a small town in Britain, thinking about all of this. Mm. Um, because I'm a nerd and I can't stop reading, I sort of went went down a whole rabbit hole in the history of feminism, and trying to answer the question: Why is it that care always? Why why is it that that freedom and work and you know public participation in the market and in employment and in public life um, always seems to be treated just unquestionably as self-evidently better than doing what i was doing which is to say pushing a buggy around mm. you know, well why why is care always the poor relation why does this keep happening because it you know as I, as I sort of read into it and realized that there's it's not as though feminists have never pointed this stuff out before i wasn't the first person to have noticed this you know there are there's a there's a tradition of maternal feminism that goes back long before the uh, long before the, the second wave. It goes all the way back, really, to Mary Wollstonecraft, as I as I later discovered. Um, but 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 somehow it always seems to end up losing. So 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 what was going so so this this is all sort of sloshing around my mind, along with the the question of what what I'm supposed to do with feminism when I don't believe in progress. And in the end, in the end, I the, the, I found the answer to that question: Why is it that care is always the poor relation? And also the answer to my question, uh, or an answer to my question: Is it possible to be a feminist if you don't believe in progress? Through delving through the history of the history of the women's movement and coming to the conclusion that you yes you can read it as a story of progress and emancipation if you want to but yes you can also read it if you want to as a story about women's response to you can always also read it as a story about technology but fundamentally a story about the the, the transformation of family life mm. via through the industrial revolution and beyond um, and how and how families and particularly how women have responded to those ways that that transformation specifically affected um, family life and motherhood and 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 being and and, and you know, existing while female in in a thousand and one different ways. Um, Fundamentally, and the, perhaps the most central feature of that was that work left the home. Yeah. Um, something which has had just had the most the most immense um, seismic knock on effects in in the relation of men and women to one another, in how women thought of what they were doing, in how, how and to what extent women were able to exercise power and in what domains, and really have, and, and also how, how women thought about what they were doing and, and, and made sense of it all. Um, so in, in the first part of the book, I've tried to set out you know, what, what I learned in, in, in rethinking, rethinking the history of feminism as being from, from through the lens of technology. Um, and in the course of that, I discovered why um, why the, the feminist, why, why care has has become this sort of structural poor relation? Because mm. it's there, it's there absolutely in spades in the nineteenth century. Now, I, I found all the missing maternal feminists; they're all there. They've just been memory hold, and this this it sort of hit me like a, yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. There's there's yeah. this entire this entire dimension of of what reads to me straightforwardly as part of the women's movement, which has been completely memory hold by. Or, or, or has been dismissed as handmaidens of the patriarchy or false consciousness or um, you know, propagandizing for the enemy in a thousand and one different ways. For example, the temperance movement, um, which from the, from the perspective of um, taking, 
taking family life seriously and taking the interests of mothers in the context of family life seriously as part of a whole that includes a man, you know, reads straightforwardly as feminism. You know, of course, you'd want mm. to discourage alcohol consumption because you don't want you don't want the, 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 to normalise drunk husbands who who. Who, who who spend their wages in the pub and then come home and beat their wives? You know, clearly temperance is a feminist movement, right. but only but only if you take if you take the sort of normative pattern for family life as as married couples raising married heterosexual couples raising children, and and from from the vantage point that we look at the women's movement from now, um, which has memory hold all of this stuff, that that's just you you're you're not even allowed to assume that as normative. Anyway, I'm I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself in terms of in terms of how <laughs> how things became memory hold. But yeah, so so in the nineteenth century, there's this there's this entire lost tradition of um, if you if you like the feminism of care and 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 of interdependence and 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 this and this this entire this this entire legacy of the the, the other feminism or, or many other feminisms really has has been lost um because having ha- having spent a solid sort of 100 150 years in a sort of back and forth between wanting to defend women's interests as embodied as embodied men and women um in in, in recognition of our reproductive differences, if you like our what Eric, what our mutual friend Erica Bakiaki would call our irreducible asymmetry, yeah, um, as sexed dimorphic beings, um, which includes the temperance movement. It includes the maternalists in the early uh, at, at the turn of the century in the United States, which was a huge, hugely well organised and powerful movement of uh, American women, you know, most of whom were mothers and running households and. Who, who would now have been dismissed as sort of you know patriarchal and homemakers and so on, but but were immensely powerful. Um, so there's, there's this whole lost dimension, um, which, which I think of, and um, which also includes that what's now dismissed as the cult of domesticity. There's a huge body of women's writing about about home life, about the moral education of children, and so on and so forth. Um, all of which emerges in the 19th century as a means of making the case for women's continued value in a context where effectively relative to pre-modern women, they'd lost a lot of economic agency because work left the home. And with it, women were demoted from equal participants in a productive household, albeit sort of nominally in, in formal terms subordinate, but effectively in practical terms equal within a productive household. They'd been demoted to chief consumer in a private household. And charged with the care of children, which is a which which for, for some people obviously is necessary, but for others might read as a sort of you know optional nice to have. Um, so this this is a major demotion, and it also leaves women in practical terms quite vulnerable. If you know it works fine, okay, if your as long as your husband is a virtuous man and he likes you, um, but if he's if he's a if he's vicious and he beats you, you have a problem because it's very difficult to get divorced. And there are a lot of women who suffered a great deal under those circumstances and had very few levers with which to to seek justice under those circumstances. Um, so the cult of domesticity is one of the is one way that women sought to uh, make the continued case for women's value, you know, under this transform these transformed conditions in the industrial era. And then there's also those other women who say, well no, this this still isn't good enough because there are still women being beaten by husbands they can't divorce, etc. and so on. And there are also there are still women who want to work who who are unable to and and, and why why are you I think Harriet Taylor Mill one who's who's one of the leading um, feminists on the other side the feminists of freedom who says the, the mm-hmm. only way the, the only way we can make sense of the fact that men keep us in this subordinate position is because they like it um, it's, it's it's possibly true in some cases but in any case you have this back and forth between those women who who think that that 
we should be making the case for women's separate sphere, which is as the domestic and the valorization of that sphere, which I've sort of broadly depicted as the feminism of care. And then other women who, who are making, who are saying that this isn't enough. And in fact, what we need is women's the opportunity for women to enter the market on the same terms as men um, and to be treated for all purposes as the same as men. And you, you could you, you could characterize that as Godie's ladies book and the right and the, the women who were writing that versus the Harriet Taylor Mills, for example, who were saying, no, actually, women should be free to 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 participate in the market and to find to find their niche according to their own abilities and really to compete on the same terms as men wherever possible and this is a you know, this is a very fruitful back and forth and you know fast forward fast forward a century or so and women have the vote and women can own property and um technology uh, te- assorted technologies have advanced to a considerably greater degree such that um, women now have the opportunity, you know, a huge, a hugely widened scope of participation in the workplace, and so on. But there's still a central, major asymmetry between men and women, which keeps things in more or less the same shape as they've had throughout the industrial era. Which is to say, women largely in a private, as, as chief consumer in a private home, and men largely as the the breadwinners in in public life. And that's that's the women can't really control their fertility and you know women have babies women get pregnant and for as long as there was there was no access to reliable birth control things stayed more or less the the shape that they that they were in for the entire industrial era you know this sort of the breadwinner homemaker model um for for as long as women were unable to control their fertility and then but then in the 1960s there was another tech transition which i think we still underprice i think we still underestimate how radical a change it was and that was the arrival of the birth control pill which which it, it wasn't a moral change that 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 blew that out of the water. It was a technological one because suddenly women were able to flatten that major asymmetry between men and women, not not eliminate it altogether, as we've discovered since, but flatten it. Um, and this this gave well, it had it had a huge number of effects. We could we we could spend hours exploring them. But one but one of them at the small scale, what it did was privatize sexuality. Which is to say, the, the the wider your community around you, if you were a fe- if you were female, no longer no longer really had skin in the game in the same way, in who you did and what you did and who you did it with. Whereas, I mean, if you think if you can't control your fertility, then you know the everybody else who lives in your village obviously has skin in the game. With in in terms of in terms of whether or not you're whether or not you're having casual sex, because if you do and you get pregnant, then the baby then what what you do with the baby is kind of everybody's problem. Hmm. Um, so, so pre pre contraception, the idea that I I own my body and nobody else has a right to control it is just makes no sense at all. And people would have just thought you were insane if you said that because it's just obviously not true. Um, but post contraception, it becomes thinkable for the first time that that sexuality is a private matter. It just was well, that was that was literally unthinkable before that sexuality should be just a private matter because it wasn't uh, because because pregnancy and children are not a private matter. Mm. Um, and that had a huge number of, of complicated social consequences, um, which delivered, on the one hand, a dividend of immense freedom, which intelligent, ambitious women were very pleased to take advantage of. You know, and you see, you see women entering tertiary education en masse. You know, hooray! Finally, I can, I can, I can control my fertility reliably enough that I can plan on completing a three or four year undergraduate degree. This was, you know, unless you really had the self discipline of a nun. There was a solid right. a solid chance that you get halfway through your degree and then had to drop out and have to drop out because you're pregnant, and and of course then that follows on to a great many women entering entering professional life for the first time because again they can plan they control their fertility 
Um, I mean, in my, in my mum's day, it was still broadly assumed that you would you you would resign from your job when you got married. That was that was just normal in kind of. A, a, I mean, she she was she was young in the swinging sixties, but though, amongst normies, it was still pretty pretty box pretty standard to to that people would expect you to resign as a woman from your job if you got married. Yeah, but that at that point the dominoes start falling if you see what I mean, and mm. and where women start women start entering the workplace, and it's and all all of this is today framed as a moral transformation, but 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 in feminism against progress, I've set out to show that in fact it was a technological one at root. It was a technological change, not a moral one, and as such, um, it it propels us for the first time into into an era where what we consider men and women to be, but particularly what we consider women to be, is inextricable from technology. And for this reason, I call it the cyborg era, because it's just, you know, if you if you think of women as, if you think of public life, and if you think of, of women's capacity to participate in public life as inseparable from our ability to control our own fertility and sort of render ourselves kind of infertile or in that way more similar to men because we're we're not going to unexpectedly become pregnant if if our if our access to personhood as such is inseparable from our ability to use technology to make ourselves to neuter ourselves effectively then then every, every woman who embraces that paradigm is is assenting to being to, to a kind of cyborg status because right. you're you're you only exist as a person in as much as you're willing to embrace that technology right and you're not legible as a person outside the parameters of that technology. And the reason I've situated this as the point also which, uh, the, the, the point where the feminism of freedom defeated the feminism of care, is that inexorably the, the legalization of contraception led to the legalization of abortion. And wherever you stand on the question of abortion, it's difficult to think of a more, of, of a more uh, full-throated statement in, in defense of freedom over care than saying my freedom is is sufficiently important that I will I, I will defend it even at the expense of a potential life that's rely that relies completely on my body and and uh, since since then it has not been possible to conceive of the feminism of care as having the same standing as the feminism of freedom because at the end of the day if if a vulnerable defenseless um, potential life that relies on my body is impeding my freedom I have I. I have, according to feminist consensus now, the right to choose to to end that life in defense of my freedom. And and this is the feminist viewpoint. Yeah, there are a lot of jumping off points there. Um, I think (laughs) I want to put a pin in the technological element. I want to put a pin in the historical thing. I want to return to that. And I want to put a pin in the self-care thing. But the most kind of pressing question I have hearing that is what is kind of the root of your attraction? I hadn't realized kind of in the, the plot line, I guess, of, of your journey with this stuff that you had rejected the idea of progress even before having a kid. What is the, the thing that made you so loyal to feminism itself despite all that, I guess would be my question. Because I think that there's an argument that, you know, in some ways feminism itself is is what has held people to some of these standards so what so when i sacked off progress why didn't i sack off feminism as well yeah is what um it's hard to say um except except that it didn't stop being true just because i didn't believe in progress didn't it didn't it didn't stop it being true that that women still get raped or you know that that that, that women get trafficked for sex 
um, or that um, you know young young women get abused in some in some ways which are specific to their sex. I think you know part of part of what left me um, reluctant to abandon feminism as such was also um, a, a, the, the discourse surrounding trans activism, which began to emerge in the UK towards the end of the noughties, mm. um, particularly on Mumsnet. I mean, this is long long before it became the 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 cultural hot button it is today. But but the Mumsnetters were smelling a rat on this stuff right. ten fifteen years ago. And we're discussing it amongst themselves. And this is this is meant. This is the this is the British parenting forum. You know, this is the people would sort of oscillate back and forth between you know talking about brands of brands of nappies and you know the, and the best way to wean your baby and and expressing expressing shock and and dismay at the at the prospect of you know males males who identify as women being being allowed in the ladies' changing rooms. And Marks and Spencer just thinking, what the flip is going on? Hang on a yeah. minute. I, I watched I watched a whole generation of otherwise completely normy liberal mums being radicalized right. on mumsnet about this about this this discourse which was emerging seemingly out of nowhere um and and which actually when i when i joined when i started listening to those conversations um i support i i i was very much on the other side you know i read my judith butler at university and i leaned, leaned into all of that i was a fully paid up butlerite queer theorist and right. a great many of my friends were female to male trans identified um, and this, and I, I'd seen it very much from the female to male perspective, and I hadn't really had very much contact with um, with, with with the other the other the other dimension of this, um, the the sort of autogynophilic one, um, and just didn't that what that wasn't part of my frame of reference. So I was I, was, I, I came to these conversations thinking, well, this this just seems really bigoted and unpleasant. Um, what what's going on here? Why are these otherwise normie mums so angry about you know, what seems to me like a perfectly reasonable extension of everybody's ability to just be themselves? Yeah, you know, and, and I, I I know lots of lots of you know former lesbians who now who now prefer to be thought of as men. They they seem they just seem happier people for it. Can can we not just leave them alone? And that that was that was where I was that was where I was at with the whole thing when I first came across it. And and it was only it was only very slowly that I that I came to see that there was that it was a much more complicated picture than that and just and having having that on my radar and seeing some you know this sort of growing pile of um the growing stack of outrages that were beginning to build up um you know and sort of incursions in women's spaces and, and erasure of, of women's wood terminology that women use to speak about themselves but I, I gradually came to came to wonder about you know whether it wasn't a little bit more complicated than that and so I suppose these these pieces were all on my radar and I've always I've always felt sort of protective of of women, women, women having a reality as such. Mm. You know, I, li I lived in a set of various sort of all female intentional communities in my twenties and found that, that and, and found, found that very sort of healing and restorative for me at the time. Um, I'd, I'd grown up in a very kind of, I, I, I don't exactly want to say a male dominated way, but in an environment where I suppose um, women's interests were just not really treated as being very in interesting, useful or relevant. And, and, I, and I found it very healing to spend my 20s mostly, mostly in what I get. In, I, I suppose you could, <laughs> you, you could call it sensa in a sensationalist way, lesbian communes, but just, you know, uh, just, just mostly among women. And I, I found that I, I found it very beneficial. And I just wasn't I wasn't willing to give up the fact that that is a perspective in its own right. Yeah. You know, just because I don't believe in progress doesn't mean that these conversations aren't worth having. I just think we need to frame them a bit differently. Was was, I suppose, where I got to with it. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, well, I guess 
<laughs> to kind of continue playing devil's advocate on it, like, couldn't you say in some ways the same thing about progress? Like, I think a lot of people are like, you know, you can be angry about it. But the fact is, I mean, as you I mean, you talk about this in your book, but you know, progress in a lot of areas, people say does exist, you know, I mean, particularly whatever medicine and things like that, you know. So then in what sense could you make that argument about feminism in some ways, but not about progress in some ways? Um, I mean, I mean, yes, absolutely. So some things get better, other things get worse. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not disputing that at all. I'm just saying it's, it's a use, it's hopeless as a meta narrative for what's going on. Um, yeah. and, and I suppose, I suppose what I, what I question is, is not the idea that women's, in, I, I, I still hold on to the idea that women's interests deserve, like merit, merit consideration in their own right. But, right. but the position I've come to with it is very much an anti-universalist one. Totally. I think, you know, w- w- women, women's interests merit defense in their own right, in their specific material context and in their specific cultural context and in, in you know, in a, in a given, in, within a given within a given context but the idea of universalizing women's interests and then rolling those out without without regard to where where we happen to find ourselves that that's where that, that that's the paradigm which i see you know being be, be, being being enforced in afghanistan at the point of a missile right. for example right. yeah i've, I've right you, know, you you understand what i'm saying I've, i have questions i have questions about the about the people who you know when you, you start talking about feminist foreign policy and i'm like who's feminism <laughs> You know, and who's feminism and who gains? Yeah, the foreign policy element of it is a bit of a mess, right. but that's another right. conversation. Right. <laughs> but I think, I mean, there's sort of two, you know, being a young woman, talking about this with men, there's some kind of, I think, two related but slightly different camps of response to that. One is the idea of just like kind of blaming feminism as a whole, saying like it's the ideology of that that has pushed us to this way that has pushed women out of the home it's kind of like yeah the fault of feminism itself and then another one which just kind of blames women as a whole right which is i think in some ways tough because by a lot of metrics women in the modern world are kind of a mess right like young women mental health issues through the roof um, a lot of kind of the worst of uh you know the progressive social push is being advocated maybe not solely by women, but they're by far the tip of the spear on it. And there's also a group that are like, none of this is men's fault. Um, this is the fault of of young women not having anything together and pushing everything in a wrong direction. And, you know, I, I wash my hands of this, right? How would you kind of respond to those views of, of the root, the roots of our modern problems? Well, one of the first things, or one of the things I often find myself pointing at, is that when, particularly the right, um, and particularly the very online masculinist right, yeah, um, I think I think you know you, you you probably know the guys I'm talking about. Oh, if only I didn't. <laughs> right, I mean, I mean, some some of my best friends, etc. But even so, you know, they, these are the yeah. I, I, I'm yeah, sort yeah. of a lot of these guys. I'm sure anathematize me in the group chat. So whatever. <laughs> in, 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 I don't I don't really care, um, but. Well, one of the things which I often find myself wanting to point out, particularly to those on the right, is that when when people denounce feminism and dismiss feminism almost without fail, yeah. they're denouncing the cyborg feminism which came after the second wave, right. and which came when which has emerged as a consequence of the victory of the feminism of freedom over the feminism of care, and whose who's sort of ground zero 
is is the 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 the, the shackling of women's emancipation to abortion which effectively says that you're you can only be a woman you can only be a person in in in, ter- in the terms that we now understand personhood if you're willing to flatten your if, to flatten your 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 dimorphic sexed existence right. to a sort of abstract post-human um post-human person and and that in fact emancipation and freedom for everybody looks like desexing everyone and everything yeah. and turning us all into in, into sort of post-human cyborg entities whose bodies are, are amenable to being remodeled at will and and i mean this is as I've argued in a few different places, this is it marches under the banner of feminism, but I think it's more accurately understood as a transhumanist ideology. Yeah, um, and and this is and, and there are a great many downstream consequences of of this, all of which all of which get get pinned to the door of feminism because I mean, I mean they they are really the mutant child of feminism, and, and that was the that was the legitimating ideology which allowed them to creep in in the first place. I mean the, right. the entire the entire industry of big fertility. Is downstream of of the cyborg turn in feminism, for example. Yeah. The the the, the entire sort of night blasted smoking heath of, of modern sexual relations and dating culture is downstream of the cyborg turn in feminism because none of none of it would be possible without 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 normalized um, contraceptive sex. You know, the, the transformation of sex from from being a procreative act to the sort of fun cost free leisure activity and all of the sort of ugly variants of commodification mm. and mutual hostility between the sexes all of that is downstream of, of the cyborg turn in feminism you know I'm, I'm not disputing any of that i'm just saying other feminisms are possible and right. look there was a whole bunch of them that existed up to this point and we can and we should take it back because if we don't we're screwed yeah you know literally and figuratively all of us <laughs> ouch I mean, in, in your book, you talk about this in a really compelling way, talking about kind of the, the issues with libertarianism and how that has seeped into feminist ideology, which is also I kind of respect for being bold in a book that's you know marketed to conservatives that you would be so critical of Hayek, who for a lot of people is like God, especially stateside. Um, but talk to me a little bit about the relationship between like economic ideas and the way that we view womanhood and the home, because the, the, the idea that there would be kind of that link in the first place isn't obvious to me. And I'm wondering, you know, what you think about the spirit of these ideas and how they affected women. OK, where do we start? I mean, we could spend a whole hour. On <laughs> I know. This. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, this is a this is this is quite a complicated thing that I've spent a number of chapters trying yeah. to argue. But the, the line the line I've set out to trace is from um, is from the 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 industrial. I, I, the, my, one of my framing one of my framing theses is that we no longer we no longer live in the industrial era, right. and we've we've imported from the industrial era a set of paradigms which mm. which no longer which are no longer enabling our flourishing because we've turned them inwards to our body we've, instead of turning them outwards to the world and sort of uh, you know in, in the form of economic growth and technology and so on and so forth all of which came with costs and benefits but you know but but in but but that that was that was the industrial era and and now we're not in it now that's receding in the rearview mirror and what we have instead in in the in the 21st century is is the same logic of enclosure and commodification which characterized that that sort of extractive mindset, which views the world, uh, views the world as resources to be to be strip mined, if you like, or to, resources to be to be used. Yeah. Um, 
you know, if I, if I borrow from Heidegger and talk about, you know, viewing the world as the in, in terms of the standing reserve, you know, and, and he views this as the, the essence of the technological mindset. Um, and I think what the, the and what happened in the 1960s with the with the transhumanist turn was that we, we went from viewing the world as standing reserve to turning that logic inwards to our own bodies. And the cyborg era to me is fundamentally characterized by viewing by viewing the human body and the human soul as standing reserve. And you see that you see that that begins in the 1960s with the simultaneous um, privatization of sexuality and commodification of sexuality. Yeah. It's once you own once something isn't owned by the commons, if you like, it's the it's the logic of of enclosure. Um, once something isn't owned by the, isn't held in common, but is rather pri in, in private ownership, then whoever the owner is can do whatever they like with it. And this is fine from the, and, and this this enables a libertarian defense of sexual autonomy on the one hand, but it also it also enables a libertarian defense of the sex industry. Right. And what I've set out what I've what I've set out to show is that freedom and trade are two sides of the same coin. And, and that once you apply that to sexual utopianism, and once you apply that to the human body, you you realise that that the, the freedom to do as you will with the, with your body, um, it will inexorably also um, play out elsewhere as the freedom for other for for for, for bodies to be bought and sold, whether whether voluntarily or coercively, um, is is a matter for for is, is a political matter really. And and that this and that this is and, and and this is the heart of a great many of the culture wars that we see playing out at the granular level today, is is the, this nexus of freedom and trade, where on the one hand we you know we're we're, we're bringing a well established set of um, what what people still think of straightforwardly as as conservative values and conservative arguments to bear on on questions concerning individual freedom and the human body, um, as though as though we were still talking about resources in in the world in general. But in fact, what we're talking about is is our own bodies. Um, you know, is it is it really appropriate to? Yeah, I mean, you could argue the toss, I suppose, as a as a as a greenie or a lefty about whether it's acceptable to cut to cut down a, a virgin rainforest. You know, in pursuit of economic growth. You know, people of good faith will dis will disagree on that question. But but it, it, that that is essentially the the same question that we're now asking about whether or not people have a right to to, to sell their gametes or rent their uteruses to a third party for those gestational services. Yeah. And, and and I think and, and the, the hinge moment of when we arrive in this in this new reality where we're talking about enclosing and commodifying the human body as standing reserve is is the, the, the our arrival into the sexual revolution, because that is the transhumanist revolution. And we've been in that for 50 years now. And it's my contention, based on how things are going so far, that feminism ought to have some questions by now about how, how pro women this really is. Yeah. No matter, no matter that it came in riding on the coattails of feminism. I think I think we need to kick it off the coattails of feminism and start asking some serious questions. Yeah. And I really like the way you talk about it, because I think the libertarian movement in general has done a very good job of painting themselves as we've been on the retreat, like we're under attack. And the way that you describe it, it's, you know, kind of seeped through both parties, even the parties that claim to have nothing to do with it, which is really like a, a very insightful, I think, addition to the conversation. No, I find it I find it particularly galling that um it the, the those those people on the mad left who are who are noisiest about um denouncing capitalism. Yeah. Or also often the noisiest about um claiming the right to sell to sell sex, for example. Yeah. Or or, or to call for for, uni for universally rethinking the, the destruction of the family and and replacement of of, it, of that with universal universally treating babies as everybody's problem, you know, and and and, and maternity all maternity as surrogacy, 
and I think you you have to have, you have to have drunk the neoliberal Kool Aid to a very very <laughs> very thorough degree to, yeah. to find yourself making that case while still seriously considering yourself a, a, on the left. Totally. Yeah, I I know we're coming up to the end of our time now, which I'm very sad about. There's so much more to talk about. But I guess, you know, talking about kind of the last major strand of your book that we haven't really had a back and forth about so far, which is the technology element. You've talked a lot about the pill. The Internet itself is such a, you know, a, a turning point in this. And I think it's mm-hmm. really like unique and important the way that you draw attention to it. You really do so in a way that I, I think is unique among people I've read on this topic. Um, And you have a fantastic quote about it in your book. You say, my body isn't something I am in, but something I am. Um, Talk to me a little bit uh, to close us out here about your your ideas about how the Internet has shaped the way that we view ourselves as people. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Sorry. I'm trying to cover all the bases and we're on a tight schedule. (laughs) No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. How do I do this in five minutes? Um, I, I should probably, I always just tell stories when I'm... Yeah. I, I discovered the internet when I, I was 18 when we first got dial-up. Um, I remember. I can remember, the, I'm old enough to remember the before times. And this, this puts me kind of in a, in a different position to you know, a great many of my younger friends. Um, I can actually remember what, you know, my, my childhood happened pre-internet, which is um, extraordinary now to think about. Um, but but I, I but I real the moment I first met the internet I realised what it was for, mm. um, it, that, and that it wasn't just it wasn't just a, a great big library the way the boomers thought <laughs> thought about. I mean, the boomers still yeah. think of the, li- of the internet as just a big as a big library, and that, and they're wrong. It's not it, it's not it's not a big library. Mm. The, the internet is a place where you live. Um, uh, that that was it, it's a place to be, and and I realised because I, I mean I. I I, I had a, I had a, I, I hated my teens. I had a crappy adolescence. I was miserable, and oh. I was, I was the miserable nerd who read Nietzsche in the bath while everybody else was out, was out <laughs> like being, you know, dating each other. And I, I was just at home, like dump, dumpy and dumpy and angry, and reading, really reading German nihilism in the bath. There, there's a, there's um, a female version of that. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we, we're, we're rare, but we exist. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, and and the, with the moment I realised, the moment I discovered the internet, I was like, "Yes, now I can find my people. This is amazing." And and I've, I and I was away. I mean, I have this. I have an incredibly mixed relationship. I have a sort of love hate relationship with the internet, and I'm very critical of the effects that digital culture has had on on everything. And I've I've, I've great. I have at least one more mm. book to write about that. And I've got one one in the works at the moment, um, but. Um, but I also love it. Um, I'm, I'm sort of I'm, I'm low key, low key addicted to the internet, and permanently, permanently Bluetooth into the into the rage machine. <laughs> um, I, I have I have an absolute love hate relationship with the internet, and I, I feel constantly the yeah. pull that the internet, this sort of disembodying pull that the internet exerts. And I think if you've grown up with it, it, you you will just you will just treat that as a normal part of life, or you won't really treat the the digital, the disembodied digital domain as as really separate from from IRL existence or, or you know or, or even really think there's very much to be said about IRL full stop and, and I think this was this was a novelty to me that I encountered for the first time at the age of 18 and, and even then I, I found it amazingly appealing that, that I could create selves for myself that had nothing to do with how I looked in in real life and I'm thinking you know if you've grown up socializing in yeah. Minecraft or whatever since you were a little kid you you're going to see it as a as a natural as a kind of natural justice that you should be able to reskin your meat avatar like you can your 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 digital avatar and I, and and this this to me seems a, a very obvious way of explaining the generational difference in attitudes to to trans rights 
and 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 so I think you know this the, this the normalizing of a sort of digi- of a disembodied social paradigm has acted as a massive acceler- insane acceler- it's poured lighter fluid on on the, the the on the transhuman turn in that already existed in technology and that have been kind of lurking in the background with since the sexual revolution and I mean really you know DARPA and and the the internet had its birth around the same time as the pill was legalized but the two the two only really fused with the with the arrival of social media and mass adoption of the internet really with smartphones which is I mean that 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 <laughs> I, I think of the real singularity as having already happened um, in the, the the year the year the first iPhone came out and they locked up Britney Spears to me that was the year of of the mm. of the, the real singularity like it's, it's happened it's done uh, we we are we have been fused collectively with the machine ever since and I include myself in that um, I mean I I have a, I have an ambivalent uh, I feel I, I have pretty mixed feelings about that but I think it's true and you know in in, in a sense you know these are the, the, these are the, the the words of a of a of a hopelessly assimilated org creature who can just about remember the before times. Uh, so, so I don't know, you know. Since in some respects, I guess I'm I'm optimistic, and I, and and I, I really do think the only way out is through. You know, we're going to have to find a way of living with these. You know, un, un, unless and until somebody figures out how to unplug the internet, which I just I don't see any realistic prospect of occurring. We're going to have to figure out ways of living with it. And I'm I'm you know I'm and I'm not without hope on that front, but. Um, but but I think it's going to take some it's going to take some doing. It's one sort of giant, never-ending marshmallow test that most of us are failing most of the time. Yeah, you're sort of leaving me with the image of like rather than the Christian mom who says their kid can't read Harry Potter, the Christian mom who's like, you can't make any avatars online. Like if that's right, right, right. If that's actually kind of like a wise way to parent, I don't know. It's 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 already within the Overton window to ban yeah. social media up before up before the age of sixteen. I'll be I'll be my my daughter will have a smartphone over my dead body for as and yeah. before the age of sixteen. Yeah, I'm I'm not alone in this. The Silicon Valley parents mostly give their give their kids yeah. dumb phones. Um, you know, don't don't watch what the don't don't watch what Silicon Valley says. Watch what they do. Hundred percent. Yeah, not enough people talk about that. You know, I think the I, I think the generation that we really need to to have have care for is the one is is the ones who grew up before anyone figured this out, and and I think we're, we're, there's going to be we're, we're going to see a lot of fallout, and we already are seeing a lot of fallout, and whether or not we're going to survive, <laughs> it's 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 probably too early to tell. Well, we didn't get to cover the historical element, which I was excited about, but that's okay. Next time, I really appreciate your work. I think so much of um, like modern, quote unquote, radical feminism is really kind of stale and repeating itself. And what you've done is a really great achievement. Um, and I really look forward to your next book and, and whatever you're going to work on next. Thank you so much. This has been a great chat. I really appreciate you having me. Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Mary Harrington on Feminism Against Progress. Once again, her book is linked in the show notes. You can find us at jmp.princeton.edu. If you enjoyed this show, I'd really encourage you to check it out because we have tons of reported lectures, notifications for upcoming events. You can join our email list there. And you can also find us on social media, on Twitter at Madison Program or on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much for tuning in and catch you next time here on Madison's Notes. Mm-hmm.